Verse 33. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. By the way, those who have no knowledge of God would be the lost. You want to know what the worst sin of a carnal Christian is? It's not showing the lost the difference that Jesus makes. It's living carnally in the world and therefore having no impact on those who have no knowledge of God. Well, we say, oh, I'm cool, I can get away with that, not a big deal, you know, I'll, I'll repent later. And we walk along, living our life, going to the bars, doing the things, and, and people are watching who have no knowledge of God and they're going, well, she's no different. I know that guy goes to church, but obviously it makes no difference in their life, so pff, whatever. And without knowing it, we actually are influencing people against Jesus simply by our refusal to live for Jesus. Paul is clear. Stop sinning. Be sober-minded. Think this through. Remember remember now here, throughout chapter 15 especially, the central theme is the resurrection. And the evil company that he speaks of here is... It's most likely those who deny that future resurrection. So Paul is exhorting them. Don't just live. Oh man, if I could get everybody in our fellowship to hear this. Don't just live as a Christian whose past is in the resurrection of Jesus. Live as one whose future is the resurrection in Jesus. And the difference is huge. One is religious. Oh yeah, he rose from the dead. And so every Easter Sunday, I'm here. Then in Christmas, those two times, I'm here. Because I believe that. I know that it happened and I want to commemorate its occurrence. If your Christianity is commemoration without anticipation, there's a problem. Something is missing. And we need the Spirit to fill that void and draw us forward. Does anyone do that today? That is, live in the past of Jesus without anticipating the future with Jesus? A friend of Cheryl's and mine posted a picture on Facebook. She's a flight attendant. Her name's Diana. And Diana flies all over the world, and she was in Europe. And she was posting a bunch of pictures of different cathedrals in Europe that she was visiting. And one really struck Cheryl and I. It's a picture in a cathedral of this beautiful glass coffin and inside the glass coffin is a pale dead Jesus people go by and they bow and they worship and they lay their hands on that coffin and they pray and you look in there and there he is laid out white as a ghost you know spear print in the side nail prints in the hands lying there dead ashen faced crown of thorns still on his head in this glass coffin entombed I looked at that picture and that to me is a picture of religion Jesus is not in the tomb Jesus was never even put in a coffin he was laid out in the tomb he was wrapped He was enshrouded in the linen wrappings as we talked about Sunday. We know that, but He came out. And He's alive and He is no longer on the cross or in the tomb. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. By the way, what is that? 
The gospel. See, I, I gave it to you backwards. Huh? Turned it around for you. Matthew 28.6, the angel said, He's not here. He has risen. Just as He said, come see the place where He was lying. And I'm here to tell you that a resurrected Jesus is a Jesus to look forward to and to live with right now, not to look back on and think, oh, what a shame. But a lot of religion does that. And we are not called to religion. We are called to a relationship with Jesus that is both now and it is then in the coming days. And we anticipate that. We don't live for traditions and notions and assumptions of the past. And the reason why this is so important, I mean, this is huge in our faith. Nothing spurs on present faith like a future hope. Nothing does. This is why we talk about the rapture of the church. This is why Paul brings it up and will, and we're going to get there at the end of this chapter, probably not tonight. But the whole point is we're looking forward, we're anticipating, we're living ready, we're sober-minded. We're in this relationship with Jesus for the coming relationship with Jesus. And it's all here and now. And it's all moving forward. And it is not about living in the past. Paul said in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And I'll tell you, if it's all about what happened in the past, why would I do that? But he goes on and he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's why I'm living sensibly and righteously in this present age. Because He's coming. He may come at any time. When my parents left me home and said, clean the house, and they went out to the store or wherever, and wanted it done by the time they got home, I always asked them one question. When are you going to be home? Right? Because then you think about, okay, I need about an hour. They're going to be gone too. So i got an hour to do nothing. But see, we don't know the day or the hour. God is brilliant. I'm not telling you when I'm coming home. You just be ready. And so we live now for then, not for what happened 2,000 years ago. What happened kicked the doors open. Don't get me wrong, Jesus' resurrection is the source of the whole thing. But our resurrection, my friends, is coming. We live toward that. 1 John 3.3 says, Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. What hope? The hope of seeing and being like Jesus Christ. And it's why Paul is going to end this letter over in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. He says, Maranatha. Maranatha, our Lord comes. It's a great conclusion to the letter and it is a great encouragement for our hope. And it's also, by the way, why the Bible itself concludes with Jesus promising, Revelation 22.20, Yes, I am coming quickly. Get the vacuum moving. Dust. Prepare the house. I am coming quickly, and John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Now, after Paul reestablishes Jesus' resurrection in those first 11 verses, and now after he has repudiated with different examples the contradiction of living one way and saying you believe another thing, 
Now, number three of the overarching outline, he reveals their future resurrection. And this is glorious. This is why we all ought to get so excited. From bad hair days to no hair days to those moments when the alarm goes off and you roll out and you think, i got to call a surgeon just to get me out of bed. When the body's creaking and aching, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're sorrowful in this world, this is good news. This is awesome news for anyone who's ever groaned in the body. And if you happen to be 20-something, you're like, what up? My alarm goes off and I pop out of bed. First of all, I never popped out of bed, so I don't even understand you. But secondly, everybody aches in the body. I don't care what age you are. Everybody at some point is sorrowful. Everybody hurts. Everybody feels physical, emotional, spiritual pain. We all do. If you have ever groaned once in your life, listen up, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Now stop right there. I guess there is such a thing as a stupid question. How are the dead raised? And Paul says, idiotus. You fool. Are you kidding me? You know what? The only kind of question that is foolish is the one that has already been answered. And that's why Paul says this. You foolish man. How would you ask that? Some commentators think Paul was actually referring to a specific individual in Corinth who penned the question in the letter to him, how are the dead raised? Oh, foolish man. Jesus said it kind of the same way as that consternation. Oh, slow of heart and slow to believe. Oh, foolish, foolish of heart. Paul is saying it's a foolish question because it has already been answered. And he gives the example in divine creation itself. You already know the answer to the question. Well, how then are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? We already know the answer. I mean, before you even read on in the passage, you know what the answer is. I do? Yeah. Psalm 19 verse 1 says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. What is David saying in Psalm 19? He's saying, look at creation. You want to see the Word of God in action? You want to hear the truth about His divine nature? Look at what He did. Look at what He's created. You don't study Michelangelo without looking at his sculptures. You don't talk about da Vinci without rolling out his drawings. God rolled out creation such that we can look at it and go, oh, 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 I get it. 
And Paul says in the very created world around us, well, he said it in Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they, mankind, you're without excuse. If you live on this planet, Paul says, you have no excuse for dismissing God. All you got to do is look around. And he applies the same approach to the resurrection. You fool, verse 36, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. There it is. What is our resurrected body going to be like? How does that work? How does the resurrection work? Well, you've already seen how the dead are raised, Paul says. Now, check this out before I read any further. The word necros, which is translated dead, it's literally corpse. It's where we get, you know, necromancy, the, the talking to the dead, or all the necro words, it all comes back to necros. It's the corpse. It's, it's the body that is dead and buried. It's in the ground. The corpse. And that word necros has already appeared in chapter 15 11 times. From here to the end of the chapter... We will only see it three more times. This is important. Track this in verse 35, where Paul says, someone will say, how are the dead raised? How are the necros raised? What happens with the body? How does that work? Okay, that's the first of three times. The second is in verse 42. So also is, he says, the resurrection of the dead. That is the corpse. And then finally, in verse 52, Paul is going to make this statement in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. The dead, the corpses. Interesting. But, with that, though he has used this word necros already 11 times and will use it three more, from here on out, the rest of the chapter, the dominant word is no longer the dead body, the necros. The word that replaces it is soma. The body. And that word now is going to be used 10 times. It was not used once in the first 34 verses of chapter 15. Now it's going to be used ten times because the resurrected body is what Paul is now describing. And yes, it involves the necros, but the necros is going to be changed to become the resurrected body. Watch this. Verse 36 continuing. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow... You do not sow the body which is to be, but, watch this, here's creation, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. First example, seeds. Seeds that become plants. Our current bodies, by comparison, are husks. Mere shells of what they will be. However, that little seed that has the husk on the outside, the reason I can't eat popcorn, really bums me out. Because those husks get stuck in the popcorn and that can cause me dietary issues. (laughs) So I avoid the husk. But inside that kernel, inside that seed, there's that husk around it, but there's life in there. Right? When you plant the seed, you don't expect a little husk to go 
and pop out of the ground. Oh, there's the husk. That's what we planted. That's not what you expect at all. Tulip bulbs are ugly. Little grayish brown ball with like little tentacles coming out of it. I mean, if it moved, I would be out of there. (laughs) But we take these tulip bulbs, and we all know what's going to happen. This ugly, bulbish thing, we stick it in the ground, and we know all of a sudden, this amazing thing is going to paint the Skagit Valley. Happens every year. But it didn't start out that way. But we know what there's something inside there that blossoms, that blooms. Something inside that seed that does something amazing. I mean, we're currently ugly bulbs, no offense. And some of you are not too bright. Listen to the second half of the working of the gospel. The first half is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. That Jesus applied to himself the first time he came. Listen to the second half, which applies to the second coming of Jesus. Isaiah 61 verse 2. After saying, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is now. Jesus will do this. And the day of vengeance of our God. That is the tribulation. But it doesn't end there. He says, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness. You know how an oak begins. A little nut. An acorn. Oaks of righteousness, glorious and big and spreading out and providing shade, and they're beautiful. A beautiful big oak tree starts as a nut. So do you. So do I. Little seeds, tulip bulbs, nuts. And yet, there's something in there. There, There's something in there that we can't see when we plant it, but we know it's there and we know it's going to emerge different than what we planted. Right now, we're acorns. Right now, tulip bulbs. And it's remarkable how much makeup we use on tulip bulbs. How much we dress up, you know, little seeds of wheat. As if, wow, we make this so pretty, it's going to be just great. And it, it, it's so funny what we do with the physical body to try and make it something glorious right now. It's a husk. It's a shell. And it's what's going on inside that makes the big difference. And speaking of His own imminent death and resurrection, Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, what does it do? It bears not just fruit, it bears much fruit. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus bear much fruit? He died. The husk, the shell that he took on when he came into this world, he died. And something happened when that husk, that shell became a corpse and was in the tomb. Bible tells us Jesus went on from there into Hades and then returned from there. And that necros, that shell became a soma, that is a resurrected body, the resurrected body of Jesus. Becoming what what we will be for that reason. Jesus 
Jesus is the only one. And we've talked about this. He's the God-man. He's the only one that's both fully God and fully man. He's the only one in all history and for all eternity who will be the one who was God, put on the husk of man, the shell of man, died and was raised with a body eternal, which is exactly how we're going to be raised, though we're not God. He's God. But it's a picture of our resurrection and understanding. What is the gospel again? Good. According to the scriptures. Good. Okay. I love it. There's a little trailing off there, but I think you got it. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ bearing fruit. Look around. The fruit's here, right here tonight. I went to church tonight, man, and he called me a nut and he said I was fruity. What are we, like granola, fruit, and nuts here? That's what he's talking about. Verse 39, he goes on. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one of men. Note this. There is one of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. Paul just clearly states we are not one with the animals. We are of a different kind. We are a different flesh. Because this body, though it will die and become necros, will be raised soma, a body eternal. And my dog, Reggie, curse his soul, I mean bless his soul, does not have a soul. He will be a little necros. A little furry, sad. I can tell you this much, our carpet is waiting for that day. (laughs) Longing for that day when Reggie is a necros. He will not become a soma. And that's the the difference, the distinction that that Paul is so clearly making. And I I know know there's some of you, you're you're animal people. I I am mostly an animal person. (laughs) Mostly. Some of you are just like, oh, no, no, no. No, all the animals have to be in heaven and and all of my pets who have died are all going to be there in heaven with me. That's fine. You can believe that. And if they are, then I will be the first to say, wow, who's going to clean that up? (laughs) But according to Scripture, sons and daughters, you are different. You are different. You are not the same as the animals. As Anna Marie loves to say, I'm not a monkey. I never was a monkey. I never will be a monkey. I don't know why they say we came from monkeys, because I'm not a monkey. Honor Reed is not like monkeys. Anyway, he makes this real clear distinction. He says all flesh is not the same. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. Okay, here's a different kind of distinction now. There are earthly bodies. And then there are those who are in the heavens that are glorious stars and suns that shine brightly and and have really their own energy, like the sun. And then there are earthly bodies like the earth, the earth that doesn't generate the energy like the sun does. We need the energy of the sun. There's a distinction here. He says, And the glory of the heavenly is one and of the earthly is another. There is the glory of the sun... And another glory of the moon, it's not as bright as the sun because it only reflects the sun. I'm adding that. And another glory of the stars. And star, he says, differs from star in glory, which is true. Some are dim. 
Some are going out. Some are bright and clear. And so there's all these differences and he's pointing to these and he's saying, listen, there are different kinds of bodies. There's beastly, fleshly, earthly corruption. And there is heavenly glory. That is a completely different thing. How are we resurrected from the earthy to the heavenly? To the glorious? From, from a place of carnality? Remember again, Daniel 12.2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel says, they will shine like stars in the heavens. A different kind of glory. Let me ask you a question. How bright are you going to shine? I think the Scripture indicates that the lives we live now will impact and determine how we will shine in the heavens then. And we're not going to become a bunch of stars. That's a children's story and it's lame. But how brightly we will shine. How we will be used of God in the kingdom. Our role into eternity is being determined. And some, I believe, in heaven are going to be dim. They're going to be happy. A lot of times that works together, you know, dimness and happiness. They're going to be happy that they're there, but they're going to be dim, whereas others are going to shine brilliantly. And, and it's not who we think. I don't think it's who we think. One of the things that was talked about this last week was the intangibles. We look at the tangibles, God looks at the heart. How are you going to shine? I, I really wonder if the intensity of our luminescence then will relate to the intensity of our longing now. How much are you longing for His coming? Philippians 2.14 Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom Paul says you appear as lights in the world. I love this. Jesus says I am the light of the world. And then what did He call the church? You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You can't extinguish that. If, if you're filled with me, you're going to light up. And Paul says, holding fast the very word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So Paul here, he is indicating the, the body of resurrection, which will be different, but will have come out of this body, this shell but the spark of eternity it's already here it's already in you you were created to be eternal but it's more than that it's a step further than that it's not just how everyone was created because not everyone though they may have the spark of eternity not everyone is going to spark into eternal life in heaven like the wheat from the grain like the tulip from the bulb, like the oak tree from the acorn, there's going to be a bunch of grains and bulbs and acorns that will launch from this planet, that will launch from this earth and meet Jesus in the sky and so ever, forever be with the Lord. And we're going to get there probably in the next study. Verse 42, quickly a couple more things and we're going to stop for tonight. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, like that seed, 
a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And that's the difference. That's what ignites the spark of eternity that is in every person. Whether you subscribe to the first Adam or the last Adam. The first Adam being Adam was just a man. And guess what? Could do nothing for you but bring sin into the world. The last Adam can come and take sin out of you cleanse you, purify you from all sin and can do, Jesus did as the last Adam, something that the first Adam could never do. Now, track this. Adam received the breath of life, didn't he? And you remember that. Genesis 2-7 Then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being distinct from the animals. There's your spark of eternity. God breathed into Adam. When a person dies now, oh man, that's a totally different topic. Forget that. (laughs) Dust to dust. Like the little kid who learned about dust to dust, that a person, you know, Adam was formed from the dust and to dust he would return and the little kid came running into the kitchen and said, Mom, Mom, I looked under the bed and someone is either coming or going under there. Just dust. But life was breathed into Adam and he became a living being. That's the first Adam. But Paul says the last Adam became, note this, a life giving spirit. The natural Adam, the first Adam, cannot do that for you. You cannot do that for you. Nobody can do that for you save Jesus Christ alone. He's the life-giving Spirit. The last Adam came as a life-giving Spirit just as the angel said to Mary. Luke one thirty-five: the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Different. God and man. Not like the first Adam who was man by the grace of God, but now God becomes man. And if you would, listen, if you would have life eternal, there is only one way, and it is by the life-giving Spirit, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's the only one who can breathe the Spirit into you. You have to be born again. That's, that's what being born again is. It's not a Christian catchphrase of the 70s. To be born again. Jesus in John 20 verse 22 gathers the 11. Actually 10. Thomas wasn't there yet. And he breathed on them. Graphically, he just breathes on them. And I don't think it was like garlic breath. I think it was probably the sweetest breath they'd ever, ever smelled. He breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the apostles in that moment were born again. The Spirit would be poured out on them on the day of Pentecost. But in that moment, in that upper room, Jesus gave them the born againness, His Spirit. You can be a husky guy, but you're just a shell of a man if you have not been born again. 
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh, this is what Paul's saying, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, a shell, a husk, a seed. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you will never be more than a shell. You will become necros, and that's it. If you're not born again, verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. See, the picture is beautiful. Adam came first, and then Christ came. I was born a natural man, and then I was born again. The natural first. I was born of water and the Spirit. I I was born again into this marvelous new life. And he says, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. What's that? Dust to dust. And you can choose to be that. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. So the question for us tonight is what's it going to be? Earthy or heavenly? Our world, have you noticed this? Interesting, our world thinks that being earthy is a compliment. He's such an earthy guy. She's just so earthy, so organic. Hey, I will eat organic. I don't want to be organic. I want to be spiritual. I don't want to be of the earth. I want to be heavenly. So I'm born earthy. I can stay earthy. And many are content to stay that way. I just want to be an earthy dude. James Taylor talks about the natural man. He loves to sing. It's a phrase he uses a lot in his music. I was born a natural man. I'm just a natural man. Well, good for you. But James... If you stay a natural man and die a natural man, you will not be resurrected to glory. You have to be born again. So many people pour out all this effort and energy into the earthy. We, we spend our lives expending our lives to accomplish something earthy, temporal. It doesn't... Talk about a contradiction. When you've been born again into Jesus Christ and have the vision of eternity and the, and the resurrection. How could you ever care about living earthy again? Doing anything that is not of eternal insignificance. So we can be born earthy or we can be born again, which is to be born heavenly. And once that happens, the challenge, the convicting call to you and to me is don't return to earthy. As, as Paul will say to the church at Galatia, I am astonished that you're so quickly returning to what you were before. How can you do that? You've been born again. Be heavenly minded. Don't return to earthly or earthy thinking. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, oh, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. If you're heavenly spiritual and again like life that is hidden in the sea so is our eternality it's hidden until Christ be revealed verse 49 and we're going to stop 
just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. You could add a word there and it works. In fact, it is what Paul is saying. The word is man. Because what he's saying here is that we are bearing, when you are born again, you are bearing the image of the heavenly man. The heavenly man. Jesus Christ. We bear that image. I I was born bearing the image of Adam, which is an image that is only unto sin and death and corruption. I was born again to bear the image of the heavenly man. I can't wait till Sunday. I'm going to... I just... I can't wait. Brian Broderson, who is a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel in uh, Costa Mesa, took over for Chuck Smith when Chuck passed recently. Brian was speaking at the conference and he made a comment and it's what stirred me to stick with the gospel another week in, in the teaching and in where we're at. He said, It's been said and it's true that the kingdom of God is already here and not yet. It's already here and not yet. Those uh, pre-tribbers tend to focus very heavily on the not yet. We can forget that it's already here. The kingdom of God. And this was said over the weekend. I don't remember who said it, but it was so good. I wrote it down. I didn't care who said it. But here's what they said. We are a colony of life on a dead planet. We are in the kingdom already, though not yet. So we are like a colony. I thought, what a perfect example. We're colonizing the planet. We're placed here by God to colonize for the kingdom that is not yet, but it's already here because the colony is here. That's the church. That's us. What does a colonist do? Go home? Go back to where I came from? That earthy place? Or prepare? You see, Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for you. Are you willing to prepare a place for Him? Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself, that is, Jesus, the heavenly man. And we bear His image. Father, that is a life worth living. To no longer be a shell of a man. To no longer be empty and without meaning. To no longer be fearful and uncertain. But to believe in the resurrection. My resurrection because of your resurrection, Jesus. And this is our great hope, our living hope, as Peter called it, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the seed of Your Word would germinate something in us that we did not expect and that would not remain a seed in our hearts but would would grow 
and bear fruit, much fruit. You have called us to bear much fruit. You said that to us, Jesus. And it is my cry, beginning with myself and for our fellowship, to be a fellowship that bears much fruit. That we are not content to sit in the soil, but we are called to spring forth unto new life. Called to bear not the image of the earthy man, Adam, but to bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, shape us after You. Fashion us after Your nature, Your character, Your desires, Your will. And we pray Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen.